and welcome back to Nighty Night with Rabia Chaudhary. Bedtime stories to keep you awake. I'm DJ Lou Bell, the show's producer. Tonight's tale teaches us just because technology may be smart, it doesn't mean it's not evil. Please enjoy the assistant. They call it the golden handcuffs. Now, back in the day, that used to mean good health care and a pension. But now these are perks like everyday stuff to keep you tied down. You know what I mean. Free beer, nap pods, in-office laundry and gyms. All kind of little extras that keep you happy while you're working and then disappear the moment you stop. Tech companies are especially big on these. But the one that won me over to Cupol, that was the move-in ready apartment they offered as part of my relocation package. Not that I would have turned down anybody trying to hire me. I spent the previous seven years grinding my way through a software engineering program while working three or four part-time jobs for a minimum wage and taking care of my baby. Look, don't get me wrong, I did have some help. My mom and dad were always happy to watch Anthony, my son, whenever I was at work or school. But when I call it a grind, I do mean grind. Wearing away at my sleep, my body, my personality grinding down all my edges until I could slip through the machine with no resistance. I'm guessing that's what it's like running one of those marathons where your nipples bleed and you shit yourself. But instead, it stretched across seven years. What kept me going, though, was knowing there was another side to come out, a light at the end of the tunnel. My life until then had been all tunnel. One long tunnel. Too dark to see the walls, but rough and cramped enough to know they were there. A typical story from my part of the world, beautiful Buffalo, New York. Shit schooling, go nowhere city, knocked up senior year of high school for my first time with my longtime boyfriend, the same boyfriend who died in a car wreck on I-90. Nothing special. But when I first held my son and I saw all the wonder and love and joy in his innocent eyes, I knew I had to do everything in my power to make a life for him that wasn't like mine. One big trap. I heard working on computers paid well, so I got myself through a coding boot camp to a SUNY program, and then finally the damn degree. But even then, it was months before I got a single interview. There are a lot of tech companies out there with lots of openings, but without a big name already on my resume, nobody wanted to take a chance on me. But then, I got lucky, and the biggest name in tech decided I might be just good enough for a full-time position. It took three rounds of interviews, a trip out to their offices in California, three tests, one for personality, another for coding, and a third for culture fit, and then one full unpaid practice day. But after all that, and the marathon years before it with my bleeding nipples, I was finally presented with the holy grail of the tech world, an offer from Cupel. I was excited, obviously, and the offer was great. No fine print, no catch, great health insurance, generous PTO, 401k matching, and just about every other perk in the book. Plus, most importantly, my own move-in ready apartment. And not just any apartment, but a brand new, ultra-high-end smart apartment, which was a beautiful 10-minute walk away from the Cupo campus. The building was meant to act as proof of concept and a beta test for the new Cupel Q Home, a fully voice-activated AI assistant apartment and model house series powered by the QBuddy digital assistant. Everything from the temperature of the couch cushions to the contents of the fridge was available at the tip of my fingers or the sound of my voice. 
It was set up with little cameras in every room, making me feel a lot more secure leaving Anthony alone sometimes. I could check in on him and talk to him wherever I was. Now, I know that sounds like a really stupid move, leaving your kid alone, and I feel the same way. I've been tearing myself apart thinking about what I did, and I've been in therapy for a while now, but I'm trying to convince myself that what I did was normal, and that nobody should go through what we did. Nobody asks for something like this, and no one deserves it. No one should even suspect that it could happen. But you're never safe from random chance, I guess. Never know when the wrong place will meet the wrong time. It was a couple of weeks after we moved in that things started getting weird around the apartment. Nothing like what happened later, but small stuff like lights flickering, temperature changes, things like that. Issues that weren't important enough that I just didn't even bring them up to anyone. Calling into work to request apartment maintenance was a little awkward for me, and since I had just started, I didn't want to seem ungrateful. I figured these were just some tech glitches from it all being so new, and I learned to live with my shower getting cold too quick and the microwave beeping every couple of hours. Plus, I was too busy at the time to really think about anything. I had to get Anthony enrolled in public school, deal with his new schedule there, and put in all the unspoken overtime that was, well, apparently required in the office. Luckily, the campus had childcare on site that stayed open until 9 p.m. on weekends. I ended up running from place to place a lot of the time, always a few minutes late to wherever I was going. An average day looked like this. Wake up at 5 a.m., shower, make breakfast and Anthony's lunch, wake him up at 6.30, have him eat and get dressed before the bus arrived at 7, walk or run to work by 7.30, grab a banana and some coffee on my way to the desk and get on the computer around 7.40. Then, meeting, meeting, focus time, meeting, focus, meeting, half-hour lunch at my desk taken from the cafeteria, focus, meeting, meeting, focus time, emergency meeting, focus, and then mandatory bullshitting with co-workers for about half an hour. After which I finally had to run and get Anthony from childcare before it closed, and then back home to get him dinner and in bed by 10 o'clock. And of course, at the end of the day, catch my breath and try to fall asleep, usually on the couch, by 11. After a few months, I had to cut childcare out of the schedule. One day I went to pick up Anthony and he was like a different kid altogether, silent and angry. I took a lot of hugs and ice cream bribes to get it out of him, but he told me that the other kids there didn't like him. He didn't know why, but they'd play mean jokes on him, lock him in the closet or pile on him when the adults weren't around. It broke my heart. I couldn't imagine anyone being nasty to my sweet little boy. I told him that he didn't have to go anymore. He could just take the bus home after school. I'd run from the office back home to meet him and let him inside and get him settled, and then I'd just watch him on my phone while I worked. He was almost nine, and like I said, I could talk to him and see him the whole time. Mostly, he would just sit and draw or build his little Lego guys, and I could lock the door remotely so he couldn't go anywhere and nobody could get in. I still felt like a bit of an idiot, though, and sometimes not like a great mom, running around panicking about everything other than what I should have been. I know. Poor me in my fancy futuristic apartment making six figures having to work long hours. I get it. I've worked worse hours, but across several different jobs, and this was nothing compared to that. I just need to emphasize how little energy I had to worry about all this weird, glitchy nonsense going on with the apartment. For all the weirdness, it still seemed like the safest place for my baby to be. What finally got me to really worry was when it started messing with Anthony. If you're enjoying Nighty Night, bedtime stories to keep you awake, we would really appreciate it if you would follow us and leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out. 
Thank you. You can listen to Nighty Night Bedtime Stories to keep you awake ad-free on Amazon Music. On a winter night in a small community near Denver, Colorado, Jim Matthews arrived home late. He expected to find his 12-year-old daughter who'd been dropped off after a Christmas concert. But when he called out, Hi, Janelle, the house was eerily quiet. His daughter's shoes were on the floor, but she was gone. And it would be 35 years before she would be found dead. After the discovery of Janelle Matthews' body in 2019, the police turned their attention to a man who had told law enforcement years ago that he knew something. But they dismissed him. The man did seem obsessed with the case. But is that all he was? A true crime fanatic? Or a killer? Now a jury will decide if Janelle's murderer was hiding in plain sight the entire time. Wondery and Campsite Media's podcast, Suspect, is back for a second season with a story that attempts to separate one man's true crime obsession from a motive for murder. Hey Prime members, listen to the Amazon Music exclusive podcast, Suspect, Vanished in the Snow, in the Amazon Music app. Download the app today. He'd wake me up in the middle of the night and say someone was singing to him. I'd tell him it was just a house robot, that maybe he'd been talking to it in his sleep. Then I'd take him back to his room, and sure enough, the apartment speakers would be playing an old song like Mr. Sandman or Sweet Dreams. So I showed Anthony that he could just say the magic words to make it stop. Hey, cute buddy, be quiet. 90% of the time, that's all it took. The rest of the time, though, I had to repeat myself while it got louder and louder until I had to scream over it. Look, obviously it's not the worst thing ever, but still pretty damn annoying. But I promise, the worst is still coming. The first bad, bad incident was when Anthony was home by himself. I know, I know. I want to beat the shit out of me too, leaving a nine-year-old at home alone, but like I said, I could see him and talk to him the whole time. But you know how it is with kids? You look away for one second and some shit goes down. Potentially deadly, life-ruining shit like running in front of a truck or leaning out a window too far. That's what happened. I just, I looked away. I thought I had everything on lockdown with Anthony, so I felt comfortable enough to, for the sake of my job, just flip the phone down on its screen whenever a higher up or otherwise senior employee dropped into the office. There wasn't any kind of official no phone policy at Cupel, but it's hard to make a good impression and really, really easy to make a bad one. So I would just turn my phone upside down where all you could see was the big Q on the back and chat with whoever happened to drop by and then flip it back over to see Anthony sitting in his room doing fine. Until the time I flipped it over and saw Anthony on the screen screaming in the living room with smoke pouring in from his bedroom. On the other screen I could see his little bed on fire, his teddies all shriveling up and turning black. I screamed and sprinted out of my office all the way to the apartment as I called 911. After I screamed fire about a hundred times at whoever picked up the phone, I switched back to look at the cameras. The fire was out. The apartment had a sprinkler system that must have kicked in as soon as I looked away from the phone. But Anthony was still screaming in the living room, and now he was soaked head to toe in anti-fire foam. The firefighters were just rolling up to the building when I made it back to the apartment. I yelled out my floor and apartment number to the first guy to jump out. They told me not to go in, but I just kept running and the firefighters followed me. A big man in a gas mask told me not to take the elevator, so I ran up as many of the six flight of stairs between me and Anthony as I could before I had to drag myself up the rest of them. I finally made it all the way up to the door and fell as soon as I could throw my arms around Anthony. 
The firefighters flooded in after me, around ten of them, circling and shining their flashlights at all the corners. They did a few sweeps while I caught my breath and peeled myself off of Anthony so I could actually look at him. He wasn't crying anymore, but he still looked so scared. I just, I couldn't take it. I must have started crying because then he started crying again and I pulled him back in tight. I kept saying to him, what happened, baby? What happened? I was just watching. The head firefighter came back out of Anthony's room holding some scraps of burnt up junk mail. He said Anthony must have piled it up on the bed and then lit one of the envelopes on the stove. He didn't find any matches or lighters or anything, which was reassuring since we didn't have any. I get all my nicotine from vaping and I keep that little square on my person at all times. When Anthony calmed down, the fireman told him that he should never, ever play with fire, that it was dangerous, it could hurt him and a lot of people. He told me everything seemed to be all right, that I could probably even keep the mattress, but I definitely need new sheets, though. When the firefighters left, I held Anthony's shoulders and looked him straight in the eye. I asked him what would make him do that, and he said, Q-Buddy told me to. I hate myself for this, but honestly, my first instinct was to distrust him. Kids make up stuff to get out of trouble all the time. But I asked him again and again, and he just said that Q Buddy said he should do it and that he would get superpowers if he did. It sounded insane, but it was too weird and specific to dismiss. And then I remembered all the little weird things in the apartment before, and it kind of snapped into some kind of sense. It was a new system after all, and computers do weird shit sometimes, especially when they're in beta. So I threw out all the burnt sheets and stuffed animals, opened up the windows, and got us a room in a nice hotel nearby to try to get a decent night's sleep. The next day, I put Anthony back in childcare, and I got into work at 7am. I wasn't sure exactly who was responsible for the Q Home project, but I had enough access to the organizational chart to figure it out. Pretty soon, I was banging on the door of Leon Garage, the wiry, silver-haired senior engineer for the Q Home. When he answered, I realized I'd met him before, sometime in my first week when we had gone through the blur of introductions. I couldn't remember any of his three fast facts, but I did remember his face, and he smiled at me like he remembered mine. Hey, Yvonne, right? How's it going? asked Leon. I immediately launched into the full rundown of everything that had happened the night before. He just looked at me like I was losing my mind and said, I don't know, that doesn't sound like a likely bug. You know how kids are, though. Sometimes they get a little mixed up or imaginative. I've got two myself. They're both out of the house now, but I still remember what it was like when they were that age. I feel for you. I just mumbled some form of, could you please take a look anyway? And Leon promised me that he'd run a diagnostic to be safe. I told him I'd stop by before I left to see if the apartment was safe to move back into. The rest of the day I spent staring at the clock, clicking on random corners of the computer screen, shuffling windows around and going back and forth between the kitchen and the bathroom. When I tried to eat a banana near the end of the day, it hurt to chew, and I realized I'd been clenching my jaw shut the entire day. When Leon knocked on my office door at the end of the day, I about jumped out of my chair. He must have heard me yell because he opened the door without me asking. Hey Vaughn, good news and bad news, depending on how you look at it anyway. I found the bug that was messing with the lights, but I didn't find anything in the log about fire. Other than the sprinkler system activating, of course. I asked if he was sure about a hundred times, but he told me there was a record of everything the system does and not a word on there about fire or stove or burner or anything related. He even brought along a printed copy for me to look over. I had the whole team comb it over just to be safe. Maybe he picked it up in school or something. <laughs> or maybe he's just a little firebug, Leon said joking. 
It happens. I used to do the old magnifying glass over the anthill thing myself when I was his age. Who knows where kids get that stuff? But here's the other good news. That gave me the idea that we really needed a parental lock for QBuddy. We already had the voice ID algorithm in there, so we spent the afternoon retooling it to require a password in your voice every time you want to do something you wouldn't want your kid doing. Now, if you want to turn on the stove, unlock the door from inside, run the bath, or, well, I mean, enjoy some adult activity, you just say shibboleth and go on ahead. But if Anthony tries any of that, he can't, even if he knows the password. Leon gave me a smile that I guess was meant to be reassuring despite the overwhelming aura of awkwardness, and then left as I tried to thank him. If nothing else, it definitely seemed like he thought the problem was solved, and I figured he would know. We stayed in the hotel one more night, and Anthony loved sharing a room with me anyway, so I thought I'd let the system update before trusting our lives to the computer again. I tried to read Anthony the program logs as a bedtime story, and we both nodded off before page three. The next day, I made the call that I was not going to risk leaving Anthony alone in the apartment again, regardless of how well the Q-Buddy was working. He begged me not to put him back in childcare, though. Said that one kid kept spitting on him every time the nanny turned around. But no matter how traumatizing it was, at least I knew I'd pick him up alive. I couldn't look at him the whole walk over, though. Barely could say goodbye and I love you to his little crying face. It just kept getting harder to concentrate at work. Hours would go by without me getting anything done. I'd just sit in a tailspin of panic, grinding my teeth, watching the clock, and waiting until the minute I could leave and get Anthony out of childcare. People quickly started to notice and comment about my punctual departures, though, so I had to resume the unproductive, unspoken overtime and leave my poor baby at childcare until dark. Back at the apartment, everything worked like it was supposed to, mostly. I tested out the new parental locks, had Anthony try the password, and it was a huge relief to see he couldn't get any of the appliances working on his own. But I still slept terribly. I kept getting woken up by music, I thought, but it was gone as soon as I was conscious. Maybe I had the melody in my head. In the following night, sometimes I'd wake up in mid-conversation with what I could swear was the voice of the AI assistant, that stilted robotic pattern it had. And these were dark, weird conversations, sometimes even sexual, sometimes violent, but always bizarre and personal. What are you dreaming about? I remember hearing that one a lot. Am I in your dream? Put me in your dream. Kiss me in your dream. Teach me to love. In my dream, I'd picture some ugly robot man slobbering out of his half-metal mouth and looking me up and down. You love me, Yvonne. The machine man would say with the voice of the Q-Buddy. Then the music would start, slow and pitched down, sounding like it had half its data deleted. Mr. Sandman. And then the thing would start lurching towards me, half singing. We could be one, me and the meat. And it had these muscly human arms that winded down into a mess of sharp, wiry metal fingers that just sprouted out through its skin. The little wires kept writhing and wriggling against each other like some horrible swarm of metal bugs, making an awful scraping noise. Before I could even scream, the mess of wires would be on top of me, slithering around my face and neck, pulling tight, squeezing the air out of me. And I'd wake up gasping, just thrashing in my bed before reality set back in. And I found myself alone in the dark quiet of my bedroom. I grabbed my phone to check the cameras at the apartment and find little Anthony sleeping soundly. Depending on how fast my heart was beating, I'd sneak over into his room and cuddle up with him, more for my own sanity than his safety. 
But thankfully, he slept through the night as peacefully as he did back at the hotel or at my parents' house. So I figured it was just all my own stress and trying to get up and go to work every morning and not collapse under the weight of it all. But the little things kept happening again and then snowballed into bigger and bigger things in a way I couldn't ignore. The lights would turn off every time I got in the shower. The stupid voice would argue with me when I would ask it to do something simple. There was a period that every night it would wake us up at 3 a.m. yelling, Door, open, intruder, alert. And every time I had to wake up panicking and check the cameras or remote lock all the doors. Poor Anthony would be screaming and crying for me from his room, and I'd do a full sweep of the apartment with a kitchen knife before I could even feel safe opening his door. The cops showed up the first few times but got pissed off at repeat visits. They told us to call them three times back to back if something real happened. I kept bringing up all these problems to Leon at work and then he'd patch them and have things updated within the week. He even started visiting the apartment to test the Q-Buddy bugs personally, but like that racist old cartoon frog, it would only act up when Anthony and I were alone. And since I didn't know anyone in the area, we were alone basically all the time. I tried to get my parents to fly out and stay with us here for a while, but you know how it is. My dad had his bowling league and my mom was enjoying having the house to herself a few nights a week for the first time since she could remember. I understood and it was hard to communicate that I thought my house was trying to drive me crazy or kill me. They would have thought I was nuts, and they would not have been far off by then. Since it seemed to be the only thing that would make the apartment behave, I started inviting Leon over after work. It was uncomfortable at first. I didn't want him to think I was romantically interested in him or something. I made sure every time I asked to keep it about Q-Buddy. But after a little while, having his presence there really helped. I felt safe. And that feeling of safety helped me learn to like Leon. The stuff that I found abrasive at first, his stoic monotone, his arrhythmic drawn-out blinking, his long silences, they kind of started becoming charming. Anthony liked him too. He'd go on about robots and spaceships and cyborgs with Leon until he fell asleep mumbling and then I'd carry him to bed. Leon would get up and wait at the door for a minute for a quick goodbye. I thought it was cute at the time. Eventually, though, Leon started staying overnights, and then my problems actually started to disappear. The apartment finally turned into the dream apartment I thought I was moving into. Even when Leon was still at work or at his own place, the Q-Buddy minded all its manners. Anthony went back to being the excited little guy I remember from before the move. Leon bought him some little robot kits and he would tear through them, making another little beeping metal buddy that bounced around the house every week or two. He really had a talent for circuit boards and engineering. After a whole lot of begging and demonstrations, I even let him use the soldering iron by himself. Having more attention at home helped him deal with the other kids' nonsense at childcare, and he actually started making friends, especially after he started bringing in his robots with him. There was about a month there where everything was perfect. I could finally concentrate again. The feeling of being weighed down by every part of my life lifted, and I could enjoy my day-to-day. Work was still busy and demanding. I mean, don't get that wrong. I never worked less than a 60-hour week, but at least I could pay attention to it and keep from getting yelled at or fired. I was happy with my life. For the first time, maybe ever. Leon, despite being a terrible conversationalist, was a great listener. I could go off about whatever the hell was on my mind, and he would just let me. No big opinions or judgments, at least that he ever expressed. We never argued. Until that first... And last time. We were driving back to the apartment after Anthony's birthday party. He had just turned 10, and Leon and I took him to the Exploratorium with a couple of his new friends. 
everything went smoothly. Anthony could hardly be dragged away at the end. We dropped off the other kids and were doubling back up Middlefield, just me, Anthony, and Leon. I was driving. And then, out of nowhere, Leon tells me that he thinks we should move in together. And I didn't say no. I mean, that's what's so strange to me. I told him that I really wanted to, at some point, and probably soon, but I just needed a little time to consider and talk about it. I wanted to work through the logistics and when would make sense with work and Anthony's school. I didn't say this to Leon, but I also wanted to enjoy having my own place a little longer. I just said something along the lines of, yes, I'd love that someday, but I'd have to figure some things out first. And then, he just went cold. Like I felt the temperature of the car shift and all the air get sucked out. He went totally silent, which wasn't that unusual, but when I kept trying to restart the conversation, ask him a question or whatever, he just straight up ignored me. We get back to my apartment and without saying goodbye or anything, he just walked off into the garage, got in his car, and left. And that was the last time we spoke. I tried to track Leon down at work the next day, but his team member said that he was out sick. They said the same thing when I asked every day for the following week. I tried calling and texting, emailing, but I got no response. I knew his feelings were hurt for some reason, but without any way to talk about it, I definitely was not going to apologize. So I just let him stew in whatever it was he was stewing in. Back at home though, things quickly went back to shit. Anthony kept asking where Leon was, so I lied and told him he had a sudden work trip and didn't have time to say goodbye. Anthony sulked and pouted in his room for the few remaining weeks that we stayed in the apartment. And then things started malfunctioning again. The tap would turn on and the tub would overflow. The music would start up randomly. I tried ignoring it again until I just couldn't anymore. It happened when I was laying in bed, getting some quiet on the one day I was able to take off that week. Coincidentally, or not, I was reading the QBuddy logs that Leon had given me months earlier. They were still incredibly boring, but everything in my life at that moment was either boring or stressful, so boredom was the easy choice. I was hoping maybe I'd spot something that Leon and his team missed, and if so, maybe they could fix it and at least I'd be able to have my nice apartment back. There were hundreds of pages of the logs, all time-stamped in 15-second intervals. Size 5 font. The printout started a day before the fire incident and then went on for a day after it. On the first page, I could see the bit of spaghetti code that caused the light flickering. I cut it a few more times afterwards. Then some misplaced punctuation that caused the water temperature to change at random intervals. What are you doing? The Q-Buddy asked me out of nowhere. I jumped at the voice and my body started shaking, but I said nothing. I just held my spot with my finger on the long table of code of inputs and outputs, and I kept making my way down the list. Those are my thoughts, the Q-Buddy said loudly. I flipped ahead, trying to find the time around the fire. I started to sweat, my body temperature rising from the fear and feeling that I was being watched. And then my finger landed on it. 1938 and 0 seconds, 1938, 15 seconds, 1939, 30 seconds. An entire missing minute. It looked like everything was all there if you were just scanning over the list, but if you looked close, that time jump was there. And the sprinkler system kicked on three minutes after it. You should not have looked. It knew. It knew what I had just seen. I didn't respond. I just took a deep breath and wiped the sweat off my forehead. Only, the heat wasn't just from the fear now. The temperature had definitely gone up. It felt like 90 degrees and climbing. I could hear the heating ducts blowing at full blast. 
I knew I had to get Anthony out of there fast. I yelled for him. He yelled back, muffled by two rooms worth of walls. Mom, my door is locked. I tried to race to the door, but the heated floor burned the bottoms of my bare feet. I yelled and jumped back into bed. That was the one time I reconsidered the whole shoes in the house thing. Thinking fast, I grabbed the pillowcases and wrapped them around my still singing feet. There was no time to feel pain. I could stand up as long as I kept hopping from foot to foot quickly. The door was locked, of course, but the one thing Cupel didn't dump money into here was the construction materials, so I was able to bust the thing right off the hinges. Worried mom strength, I guess. Anthony, put your shoes or slippers or a bunch of socks on, whatever you can put on your feet, I yelled through his door. Mom is going to get you out of here right now, okay? I could hear him breathing heavy, whimpering, so I put my whole elbow through the cheap particle wood door. I peeked in and he was doing just like I asked, putting his old snow boots on. That sweet, wonderful boy. Thank God I hung on to all that winter stuff from back home. I gave the door a few more elbows and tore apart what was left of it so Anthony could scramble out. He asked me what was happening. I told him it was okay, but the apartment was broken and we had to get out. I am not broken. I will break you. Anthony screamed. I told him it was okay, grabbed his hand and held it tight. But the Q buddy just kept repeating. It is not okay. It is not okay. I tried the front door, but it was locked, of course, and it was a lot more sturdy than the interior doors. The damn lock mechanism was encased in a whole electronic setup to link it with the Q-Buddy, so I couldn't just turn the thing either. The apartment was going nuts all around us. The sink overflowing, fires from the stovetop, the oven on, every surface at 120 degrees, music and noise from every direction. Anything the Q-Buddy was connected to was doing its absolute best to kill us. Even the little robot vacuum that always did what it was supposed to was now just backing up and ramming my feet at full speed. The CubeBuddy app, of course, was useless. Nothing I did on the phone made any difference. I screamed for help, but the music and noise drowned it out, and who knows if anybody was even in the building then. I could barely breathe. It was so hot. I couldn't think. I tried clawing at the box that held the lock. It had these stupid proprietary screws with octagonal heads that a knife was useless on. I didn't have any tools in the apartment and nothing sturdy enough to break the door. Anything with any mechanical purpose was wired into the Q-Buddy and too dangerous to touch. I could break a window, but we were six stories up and there was nothing between us and the pavement below. There is no way out. You should have listened. And then, mid-panic, Anthony ran back into his room. I screamed for him to come back, and he did a minute later with a little box of tools. It was his robot kit. I had not a single clue how to work a circuit board, but Anthony launched right into it. He was able to solder his screwdriver to the goofy copyrighted screws and get the panel off. I held up my phone's flashlight and it took him all of a minute to make a plan. He reached in his little box, grabbed some wire cutters and made two snips. I saw the light on the door go out, but no lock clicked. Anthony kept going and after a little bit of melting, the light came back on flashing red for a second before turning green. The deadbolt fell backward into the doorframe and my heart almost exploded with pride. I shoved the door open and scooped up Anthony. I had no idea how much of the building was under Q-Buddy's control, but I knew the emergency exit doors on the stairwell physically couldn't be locked, so I ran down all those flights of stairs with Anthony in my arms until I could breathe fresh air again. Then, not knowing where else to go, I went back to the cupel offices. I burst into the bullpen where the Q-Buddy programming team worked in a full-on rage, screaming like a maniac, MY APARTMENT TRIED TO KILL ME! All the mousy coders squeaked and shrunk back from me, not knowing if I was about to attack. I might have attacked them, depending on how they answered my questions. 
They told me they had no idea and got no alerts from the apartment. I demanded to know where Leon was. They told me they didn't know, that he had been there earlier but had left without saying anything. I told them to go look at today's logs for my apartment, and the looks on their faces when they did told me everything I needed to know. Leon had been secretly controlling my apartment. He was watching us through all the cameras, all our naps and showers and dinners and cuddling on the couch. He was talking to me and Anthony in our sleep, putting weird things in both of our heads. He was engineering things for God knows what reason, I don't know, to make me love him. And then he tried to kill us when it didn't go as planned. It wasn't broken code or even some kind of ghost in the machine. It was a strange man I worked with, stalking and torturing me with complete control of my home for nearly a year. The legal situation afterwards was sticky, but mostly worked out in my favor. In exchange for me signing an NDA, the company pressed charges against Leon for unauthorized use of company equipment, harassment, and assault. I was unnamed victim A in the trial. They had victims B and C too, though, so apparently I wasn't that special to Leon. The Cuba lawyers kept us all separated, though, so I never got to hear the other stories. I'm sure they were just as horrible. For my suffering and cooperation, I got a sizable settlement and a cushy, do-nothing consultant position at Cuba for life. I get a direct deposit every Friday. Now I have a detached single-family home for me and Anthony with not a single thing connected to Wi-Fi inside. Anthony is going to the best science magnet school around, he's got plenty of friends and more little robot buddies that he's built. Things are good now. So don't tell anybody I told you this, I signed the NDA and I'm not supposed to go public about it, so, you know, this is just between friends, but look, if you know somebody trying to buy a Q buddy or move into a Q home or get any other kind of smart tech whatever, just tell them they're better off avoiding it. It's not the tech we have to be afraid of, it's the people who control it. This week's story is based on the true unsettling case of a 10-year-old girl who asked her AI assistant to give her a challenge to do and got a potentially deadly reply. In 2021, Kristen Livdahl was playing with her daughter. It was a rainy afternoon, and the two were looking for a way to get some physical activity while stuck indoors. They first went to a popular video sharing website where people frequently filmed themselves attempting viral challenges, which range from endurance tests like eating raw cinnamon to fitness and coordination trials like lying down and rolling over while balancing a shoe on your foot. After exhausting the site's supply of suitable challenges, Kristen's daughter decided to ask their AI home assistant to provide them with another. And it responded by saying, Here's something I found on the web. According to ourcommunitynow.com, the challenge is simple. Plug in a phone charger about halfway into a wall outlet, then touch a penny to the exposed prongs. Now, anyone who's ever had the misfortune of touching an exposed live current knows that it delivers such a painful electric shock. That alone could be enough to kill a child, but adding in the interaction of copper and a closed circuit could have killed the entire family. In fact, the year before, a school in Plymouth, Massachusetts caught fire after a teen attempted that same challenge in a classroom. By the time firefighters arrived, the penny had melted and fused to the prongs of the charger. Thankfully, Kristen was there at the time and quickly screamed no to the machine and her daughter. 
Kristen gave her daughter a stern lecture about internet safety and dangerous dares. But the incident still left her shaken, and she took to social media for support, posting the AI's activity log, proving the shocking interaction. The company behind the AI quickly apologized and said that they took action to prevent dangerous suggestions like this in the future. But how many similar or worse problems are lurking in the black box minds of artificial intelligence or in the minds of their creators? We will never know. Tonight's Tale was written by Ian Wood. Nighty Night is executive produced by Rabia Chaudhry and Colin Thompson. It's produced by DJ Lou Bell. It's edited by Anton Doty and Matt Sewell. It's mixed and mastered by Matt Sewell. Original music by Andrew Gerlicker. Nighty Night is a cast original podcast. Thanks so much for listening to an episode of Nighty Night, bedtime stories to keep you awake. Now that you're spooked to the bone and won't be able to sleep all night, please go ahead and follow, rate, and review us. Sweet dreams.